Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG, and I'm Eric Clayton. If you have had any encounter with Jesuits at a school, a parish, a nonprofit, you probably know a little about St. Ignatius of Loyola. You may know he got hit by a cannonball, that he wrote the spiritual exercises, and that he ultimately went on to found the Society of Jesus. It's pretty good, right? Wrong. Father Bart Giger, SJ, a research scholar at the Institute for Advanced Jesuit Studies and assistant professor of the practice at the School of Theology and Ministry at Boston College, returns to AMDG to give us a behind-the-scenes look at his new edition of Ignatius' own autobiography, and tells us why calling it an autobiography isn't really quite right. Father Bart and I get into some more of the common misconceptions around Ignatius, around his understanding of Catholicism, and why setting the record straight matters. Ultimately, Father Bart helps us recognize where God was at work in Ignatius' life, and how spending time to reflect on the saint's life might better help us discover God at work in our own. Don't forget to subscribe to AMDG wherever podcasts are found. And hey, why not tell your friends? Father Bart Giger, welcome back to AMDG. How are you, sir? Thank you, Eric. I'm very glad to be here. Very honored that you would have me back again. I mean, people people love the last one, right? This is this is this is what everyone's been waiting for is the uh, the epic sequel to the Bart Giger podcast. Well, I have plenty of dirt on Ignatius, whatever people like. I'm I'm their man. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, last time you were here with us, uh, we talked about some of these myths and the uh, and misattributed facts and and kind of legends of of Ignatius and other Jesuits. Um, you know, the one I think that, that comes to mind most readily is is the uh, the quote unquote Rupe prayer, which was written by someone else. Um, so what's your sense of, of the Ignatian family? Have we made progress? Have we, have we uh, rooted out the, the, the myths? Uh, well, I don't think we're ever going to root them out completely, to be honest. <laughs> and uh, uh, on any number of websites and things like that, books, I still see these misattributions appearing everywhere. But I think that's the nature of the beast, really. We're never going to eliminate those completely. Uh, but the gratifying thing is I have heard from any number of institutions, schools, or Jesuit works that have said, we're making a little bit more of a concerted effort here to watch what we claim about Ignatius and about what he said, you know, and uh, uh, and just to show that no good deed goes unpunished. Uh, I have actually accidentally made more work for myself because now I get an email about once every five or six months from someone saying, uh, Father Giger, did Ignatius actually say this? <laughs> you know? and so I some of those emails are from me, I think. I think I uh, contribute to that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's good, right? You, f- you feel like, um, I, I mean, that, that's got to be something of a spiritual journey for you to co- like constantly slowly help people better understand uh, Ignatius and, and, and the, the order that he founded, right? Oh, absolutely. I am, I am just gratified that what I've been doing seems to be making a difference. People really seem to appreciate it. And the people who are calling me and asking me for clarification about other things regarding Ignatius, I'm learning as I go as well. You know, and so, yeah, I feel privileged to have been a part of this process. Cool, 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 cool. And we'll we'll link for uh, listeners that original podcast episode, so so folks can uh, see if they if they themselves have been buying into some of these these myths. But I want to talk about uh, a new project or, or newish project, right? Uh, you recently uh, kind of completed a, a translation, a new a new translation of uh, Ignatius's autobiography. Uh, so I wonder if you might just tell us a little bit about that project, what prompted it, um, and uh, and how it went. 
Absolutely. Uh, to be clear, now this new edition is not a new translation. I oh, actually, okay. I actually am using a translation which has been around for about thirty years or more by a father Davarkar Parmananda, uh, who is deceased now, the Society of Jesus. And the basic story is pretty straightforward. The institute where I work, the Jesuit Research Institute, has the copyright to his translation of the autobiography. And it's been a big seller for our institute for many years now. Uh, but we were running out of copies to sell. And so my boss, Father Casey, said, we need to print more copies. And I said, well, Father, instead of simply reprinting this old edition, why don't you give me six months to try to revise the translation a little bit and add some more notes uh, to help people understand the text a little bit better. And he agreed. And uh, it was one of the most exciting and enjoyable experiences that, that I've had working with the autobiography at that level. Nice. So, so what, um, what got you thinking, Hey, like, like this opportunity is one that can't be missed. What were some of those specific um, details that, that you said, Hey, like this, this is something I really want to dig into or, or expose mm-hmm. in a new way. Well, this idea of trying to interpret the autobiography in terms of the earlier spiritual tradition in our Catholic faith, uh, the idea that Ignatius did not come up with all of these ideas on his own, that he is very much indebted to this earlier tradition, and especially the desert tradition, which you might remember that we talked about in that first uh, podcast, Uh, these saintly men and women, hermits, who lived in the Egyptian desert in the 4th and 5th centuries, had a profound impact on Ignatius. And so when I saw that there was an opportunity to revise this translation, to create a new edition of the autobiography in which I draw people's attention to those realities, it was an opportunity that was too good to pass up. Cool. Even even the title is different, um, or, or to my eyes, right? Um, a Pilgrim's Testament, the memoirs of St. Ignatius of Loyola. That I, I think if I saw that on a bookshelf at Barnes & Noble's, if I was going to Barnes & Noble's these days, I, I might think that was a different book from the autobiography. So can you talk a little bit about um, the differences in, in – I know in your, in your introduction you talk about the differences in what this, this kind of piece of, of work has been called and why. Exactly. Uh, you know, what exactly to call this very unique text Text has been a bone of contention among Jesuits and others for many years now. Uh, strictly speaking, it's not an autobiography in the sense that Ignatius was not systematically trying to describe all the high points in his life from the moment of his birth until the present. Okay. Uh, he was simply highlighting key themes and ideas that were important to him and that he wanted other Jesuits to know. And so uh, memoirs is probably a much better uh, title for the book. Um, now, the title that Father Parmananda came up with years ago, A Pilgrim's Testament, uh, comes from Nadal, actually, who an, an early Jesuit who knew Ignatius well and Jesuit spirituality well. Uh, and he referred to the text as a testament. And again, this is a very traditional term, testamentum in Latin, which is uh, St. Dominic, the memoirs that he wrote for the Dominicans. Uh, he referred to that as a testament as well. So we were simply, uh, by giving it this title, A Pilgrim's Testament, it once again is a little nod to the earlier tradition. I wonder, you make me think about... Uh you know, this, the way that Ignatius approached this, this, again, autobiography, for lack of a better word, testament, um, you know, he was thinking about kind of 
putting things down for Jesuits, right, for the good of the society. Is is this even a text that that should be writ, uh, read by non-Jesuits? Is it is it helpful to folks like me who are just kind of uh, bumbling about in Ignatian spirituality? <laughs> well, that's a great question. You know, I teaching a 16th century text for people uh, can be very challenging, of course, because we're talking about a whole different world, aren't we? Not only in terms of how we understand religious life, but just culture in general. Uh, however, I think it's important to remember that these Gospels that we read all the time, the four Gospels, are far more removed from our 21st century cultural context than the autobiography of Ignatius, right? It's, uh, mm. you know, and uh, in that sense, the four gospels are ever challenging to us. There's always nuances that remain to be uncovered and explored. And the same way here uh, with the Testament of Ignatius, it certainly is challenging, but with the right amount of footnotes and help, you might say, I think it's, I think it's a perfectly adequate and, fantastic text to use, uh, not only for Jesuit formation, but especially for the formation of our lay colleagues who are working in our schools, retreat houses, and other institutions. That's really where the book is getting used now. And mm. uh, that's that's very exciting. I remember when I first read it, um, who knows which edition or translation, but, um, it, you know, just being struck by uh, Ignatius's He's he's hard on himself, huh? Out of the gate, he's he's pretty hard on himself, and and that language even more than the um, the cultural context against which he was existing uh, was what I found most challenging. I was like, oh my gosh, like this guy is really tough here. I I don't know if I can do this kind of thing. That's exactly right. You know, I love to tell my students that a relationship with God is like any long-term romantic relationship between two people. You know, when we first fall in love, when we first start dating, and we're trying so desperately to impress the other person, we can be hyper hard on ourselves in terms of our personal appearance. We're constantly nitpicking in our own minds what we've said to the other person and what the other person said back to us. You know, uh, very neurotic in that sense, because we're trying to present the most perfect version of ourselves that we can. But of course, after you've been married 50 years, it's quite a different situation, right? You know, yeah. uh, you're, you're much more comfortable in your own skin and your relationship with the other person. And you don't have to try to impress the other person as much, you know. Um, and that's exactly what happens to Ignatius at the beginning of his spiritual journey. He's in that romantic period, you might say. And the, the Pilgrim's Testament really captures that well. His memoirs, he's very honest about... Um, the romanticism that he brought to his relationship with God shortly after his conversion experience for both good and ill. Okay. Um, and, and how his relationship with the Lord matures over time and he learns to be easier on himself and more forgiving of himself. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I think the other thing at the, uh, just for those who've read the, the, um, the, the autobiography here, um, it ends long before, obviously, Ignatius' story ends. And so in some ways, there's you have to kind of get the, um, you know, the special edition uh, <laughs> from, the, from the cutting room floor there to get a sense of that full completion of Ignatius' story, right? I mean, to look at his letters and other things. That's right. I would argue that uh, we have a wonderful collection of letters uh, that was produced about 25 years ago by three Jesuit scholars called Ignatius of Loyola, Letters and Instructions. And I would argue that this is the most overlooked gem in the Ignatian toolbox, that just Ignatius treats a host of spiritual issues and theological issues with real insight and warmth. 
And so uh, you're absolutely right, Eric. Uh, the autobiography or the testament or whatever we want to call that, uh, it's a great segue. It's a great introduction to Ignatius's values, but you certainly would not want to end there. I would say it's right. yeah, the door. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's helpful. Um, for, for, for listeners as they, uh, as they kind of, uh, you know, discern their own path through Ignatian spiritual reading. Um, I want to go back a little bit to, um, uh, how the, how the original autobiography, the original Testament came about. Cause I was so intrigued. I didn't really know this when I was reading through your introduction, um, Ignatius's own resistance to the writing and, and particularly, um, his concern about vanity, um, this, this sin that he himself had, had struggled with. Um, can you talk a little bit about more about how, uh, vanity factored into his discernment on whether or not to write this and ultimately how it all came together? Oh, exactly. You know, I think a correct understanding of vanity and pride and humility lies at the heart of Ignatian spirituality. And these are themes that pop up over and over again, not only in the autobiography, but also in the constitutions and many of his letters. Okay. Uh, and so to begin, you know, it's always helpful to put yourself in Ignatius's shoes. You are the superior general of a brand new religious order and you're associates come up to you and say, Father Ignatius, we want you to dictate to us your life story as a, a testament to future Jesuits about the kind of man that you are and your values. All right. Well, that's essentially the same thing as saying, Father Ignatius, we know that you're a saint, that you're going to be canonized a saint, uh, and therefore we want you to leave your holy wisdom for others. And so the mere fact that Ignatius would agree to dictate his memoirs in the first place could be interpreted cynically by any number of people as Ignatius making a plug for his own future canonization. Okay. Um, and so to a certain extent that would have been on his mind. All right. Uh, how is this going to look to others if I dictate my life story like this? Okay. Uh, and that is part of the reason why he resisted he hedged for quite a long time, even though early Jesuits were insisting that he do this. Compounding the problem is that there is a long history in the church of holy founders of religious institutes like St. Dominic, uh, leaving to their followers a testament about their life and their values. So again, precisely for that reason, the mere fact that Ignatius would dictate his life story would seem to be an implicit way of his saying, I know that I'm going to be canonized just like St. Dominic was, you know. Mm. Uh, on the other hand, what the Jesuits were saying was, Father Ignatius, you have to look at the big picture here. And ironically, that was Ignatius's big stick too, right? The greater glory of God, the more universal good. So the early Jesuits were saying to Ignatius, Father Ignatius, we understand your concerns about vanity, but you got to practice what you preach here. If you dictate your life story for the edification of future Jesuits and others, you will exert a massive good long-term on the spiritual formation on any number of people. And so you have to look at the greater good here. Where are we going to make that bigger impact on God's church? And that precisely was the uh, consideration that brought Ignatius around. Yeah. It, it almost, as, as, you're, as you're describing this experience, I'm thinking about um, any number of, of writers of, of contemporary time that are, are kind of sharing their own experiences um, 
you know, with others. And, and mm-hmm. I, I imagine the same kind of temptation to pride. Um, and it almost seems that there's an Ignatian, I don't want to say Ignatian solution, but Ignatian spiritual practice that we might put into play, um, for any, for our own writing in this, in this day, um, our own, re- uh, kind of relaying of our memoirs. Would you, mm-hmm. would you agree or what would you say? As a matter of fact, Ignatius has a great technique in this regard. And he actually recommends something like this in the spiritual exercises. Let's say that you have this recurring desire to write a book that you think is going to be for the glory and the edification of God's people. And yet this thought enters your mind. Well, how do I know that my real motivation isn't, I want to look good. You know, I want to be famous. I want to make a name for myself. And maybe I think spirituality is the easiest way I can do that, writing a book on that, you know, and you're racked with indecision. What is my real motivation for doing this? And Ignatius says, there's actually a wonderful little technique that you can use in prayer to find out which it is. And what you do is you sit down in prayer and you say, Lord, if it is for your greater glory and honor that my book be a flop, then I am asking you to let my book be a flop. Make my book flop if it serves your purposes. And if you can say that prayer and you feel the surge of uh, fear or sadness come over you, well, then you know that your ego is playing a big part in this. But if you can make that prayer and be at peace when you make it, then you know that you really are interested in God's greater glory. So Mm. that's a perfect example of what Ignatius called adjure contra in Latin, to go against your temptation by praying for the opposite. Yeah, no, that's a great practice. And it is a nice, simple, simple way for, um, again, any sort of kind of, I imagine, creative projects in, in the spiritual, the spiritual mm-hmm. life. Um, I want to, I want to uh, spend a little bit more time on the Catholic traditions of Ignatius's time. And particularly, and I think this probably gets a little bit back to what we um, talked about in our last conversation. Um, this idea of, of Ignatius making up new things, you know, breaking with tradition, uh, mm-hmm. Ignatius spirituality is, uh, you know, brand new versus, um, is, is he, you know, building on what's there? And you already mentioned the, 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 the desert fathers. Uh, mm-hmm. How, how might we, um, again, where we are in, in time, look back and, and, and really appreciate more fully the, uh, you know, the, the, the natural evolution of, of, of things. Sure. Sure. Well, you know, what I always like to remind my students is that we in the modern West, are unaware of many of our biases, like every culture is, of course. And one of our biases that runs very deep in us is the idea that uh, you are truly intelligent, you are truly brilliant if you create something new, if you're innovative, okay? But if you simply keep an idea going, or if you simply adapt it for the changing needs of the times, that is somehow less romantic, less sexy, if you will. Okay. Uh, and yet there was an f- expression in the Middle Ages that Ignatius himself used on occasion. Okay. It was a Latin, Latin expression, and it was, um, it is no less a virtue to preserve what has been created than to have created it in the first place, okay? So, for example, you, were, you mentioned Father Pedro Rupe earlier, right? And there is a 
tradition among Jesuits because we esteem him so highly. And Father Arupe got the Society of Jesus through such difficult times, right? right. There, there's a tradition among Jesuits to call him the second founder of the society. You know, to our minds, that's the highest praise that we can give anyone is to call them a founder, the idea that he did something new. But mm. I would argue, hmm, wouldn't it be both more accurate to say uh, he is the first great preserver of the society, the first great perpetuator of the society, you know, something like that. Um, to give you a concrete example of what I mean, uh, the rule of St. Benedict was written in the 600s. And this was written by St. Benedict as rules and regulations and spiritual principles for how Benedictine monks and nuns were supposed to interact with each other and with their superiors. And this text is one of the most famous texts in all of the Catholic tradition. It exerted a massive impact over the next 1,500 years, not only on Catholic spiritual life, but even Western jurisprudence, okay? Now, in the 1920s, a scholar was able to prove that St. Benedict, instead of writing that rule from scratch on his own, had actually found a different religious rule that was much, much longer and much inferior. And St. Benedict basically excised out all these different pieces of it and rearranged it to create his own rule. All right. So in modern terms, we would say he plagiarized. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. And busted. When when the Benedictines learned this in the 1920s, many of them were devastated because they thought it was somehow an uh, impugning the brilliance of their founder if he cobbled together his rule from another source. All right. But in the in the Middle Ages, they would have thought just the opposite. St. Benedict had the brilliance and the holiness and the insight to see the gem amidst all the stone and the, and the rock and to take it out and to blow the dust off it and to make it into something perfect, right? So does it really detract from Benedict at all that he pulled from an earlier tradition, if you will, okay? And I would say absolutely not. Uh, or, you know, the story, someone once asked Michelangelo, how do you do one of your gorgeous sculptures like, uh, you know, the Pieta or something like that? He says, I imagine the sculpture already made and then I just brush off all the dust and stone around it. <laughs> right. <laughs> I have <Yeah>. heard that. <laughs> and so I, I would argue that this is really the, neat, the way that we should be looking at Ignatius. Um, now, to be sure, he did have innovations and new spins on things. I'm not, and those are critical for understanding him. So I'm not denying that. But if you were to ask Ignatius himself, I am morally convinced that he would have said he would have been horrified if he thought that we were claiming that he made up his spirituality on his own. That he was very conscious of drawing from that earlier tradition. Yeah, I, I love that. I've not um, I've not heard of it kind of quite that way, and it makes me think a little bit about um, it's like the like the, the the monolith story, or like there's only six storylines ever in all places and really every story ever told is just kind of a, a rehashing of one of those which i think to you know to, to some might be like oh man like we, this is a boring thing or i gotta really find my own story and others it, it is a nice 
uh, you know, the idea that kind of we're, we're, we are kind of chipping away at like the, uh, the marble of humanity and, and, and getting in deeper, deeper into, um, you know, what is truth, right? If we kind of keep circling around the same thing in, in, in different, you know, from different perspectives, you imagine we're, we're getting closer. Um, but yeah, I, it is hard because, you know, the, um, you know, the entrepreneurial innovative spirit of, uh, of least contemporary society would, would seem to, um, push against that, that idea of, uh, of uh, just keep, keep it going as it's going. Cause it's, it's going <laughs> well. Right. Well, I tell my students, I said, I'm an unrepentant classicist. <laughs> and what, what I mean by that is, you know, and people argue about this. So, you know, Jesuits and everybody else have different opinions. But I firmly believe that human nature is the same in every generation. Our cultures may look very different. You know, the, the details may look very different. But at the end of the day, we wrestle with the same temptations, you know, the same desires, uh, the same conflicts that we always do. You know, and that's why we can have classic literature that was written several hundred years before Jesus that still speaks so powerfully to us today. You know, so yeah, yeah, yeah. and even I mean, you know, obviously, uh, I was talking to uh, to Joe Hoover a few weeks ago, and we're talking about um, Buddhism and and, and Catholicism, and um, and certainly how we would never equate all world religions because that's of course an insult to, to all different religions every religion is different mm-hmm. but but that you do find as you as you kind of you know muddle about in in different religious traditions that there are things that look and feel similar and 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 oh like like as you said like humanity is was grappling with this same kind of temptation or suffering or whatever it is and 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 mm-hmm. let's see what the vocabulary is over here i you know, just it just again that that you know things feel radically different and yet there's there's some kernel of of sameness that that's that's, that's right. worth digging out and um yeah it just it just uh sometimes it's, it's surprising right when you stumble upon it well in a perfect example of this eric i'm teaching this right now in one of my classes one of the great tensions in spirituality in general regardless if we're talking christian spirituality or islamic or buddhist or whatever a classic tension is when we talk about contact with the divine in prayer or contemplation or something like that. To what extent do we believe that we get our knowledge about God or ultimate reality from our own intimate personal relationship with that reality? You know, like a mystical experience of God or what comes to us in prayer or contemplation. And to what extent do we learn about the truth of God from other people, from a tradition, from other sources, right? And that is, depending on where you fall on that spectrum, you see this tension pop up over and over again, for example, in Catholic history. So, for example, there was a, um, uh, a, there was a heretical movement in the ancient church called Gnosticism, which the basic idea was that they held that all true and certain knowledge of God comes from your mystical experiences of God. And so we're going to ignore tradition and the institutional church and the sacraments, we don't need any of that stuff, right? And other people too, I would imagine, and, right? and just, just like your general community you'd be ignoring. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I, we no longer need other people. We can do this on our own. Okay, now, obviously, I'm grossly oversimplifying, but you get the idea, right? right? Um, and they would further say, if, uh, if you, you may call yourself a Christian, but if you don't have these kinds of mystical experiences, then you don't really get what it means to be Christian. And would you believe it, Eric, that 
that you see that very same thing pop up in the 16th century when Ignatius was alive with a movement called the Illuminati, which I refer in that in the autobiography of Ignatius. These, again, were Catholics who believed that they were illumined, enlightened directly by God and didn't really need the church anymore. And many people accused Ignatius. They thought that he was one of those Illuminati. Um, and in some ways, we see the same thing popping up now in the late 20th, early 21st centuries uh, with the New Age movement and things like that. Um, and so you see the same basic patterns recurring over and over again. And I would argue the same basic temptations in many ways with regard to what it means to be church. Yeah. Yeah. And I would imagine any any time that your idea of what it means to be church means to kind of discard the church as in like people of God uh, and just go it alone. You, you're, you're probably, uh, you're probably doing it wrong. Um, I, I wonder just as we're talking about these different spiritual, uh, you know, so spiritual insights, you know, what, what, as you kind of engaged again, anew with Ignatius's story, what, what did you take away from it uh, for your own spiritual life? Right. Well, two things in particular. And one is uh, I'm, I'm, I really became increasingly fascinated by Ignatius's treatment of humility and he, how he understands this. And I think we might have discussed this a little bit in the earlier podcast. But if not, I would say uh, there's a there's a tremendous uh, a widespread misunderstanding among Catholics about what we mean by humility. We mm-hmm. tend to think it means you beat yourself up and you pretend to be a nobody. All right. And that's not what it means. True humility means acknowledging the truth about yourself, whether it's good or bad. You know, if I acknowledge my gifts and my skills and my special vocations, if I acknowledge them in the for the right reasons and in the right context, then I am being truly humble, just as if I'm acknowledging my weaknesses or my sins. Okay. And so for Ignatius, this becomes a challenge because you remember that he wants the Jesuits to be dedicated to the greater glory of God. He wants Jesuits to be thinking very magnanimously, very big heartedly in the service of God, to think, how are we going to impact the greatest number of people over the long run, for example? And so let's say that I, for example, come to the conclusion that I could make a massive positive impact on the church by starting my own television show, Father Bart's, you know, whatever, whatever, that kind of a thing. And uh, which actually, now that I mention it, may not be a bad idea. This is your preview right here. This is make your pitch. <laughs> uh, but getting involved in a project like that can be a great temptation to your vanity, right? Because you are making yourself a public figure. And yet, Ignatius is going to say, if you come to the realization that in light of the skills and the gifts that God has given you, that you are going to be, you are going to serve his people more powerfully by doing this program, he said, then it would be a lack of humility for you not to do it. Okay. Because you're simply acknowledging the truth of who you are as a creature with your gifts, and you're acknowledging the mission that God has given you as a creature. And so true humility means stepping up, even if that means 
that it might make you famous. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. You know, there's that great, one of my favorite lines is a man for all seasons, right? About mm-hmm. St. Thomas More. And uh, he is being tempted to sign the oath of supremacy, which declares the monarch of England to be the head of the Catholic church instead of the Pope. And if he doesn't sign this oath, he's going to be executed. And his daughter, Margaret, says to him, she tries to get him to sign the oath. And she says, Father, the only reason you're not signing it is that you know if you get executed that people are going to call you a martyr and a saint in a future. And that's why you're really holding out. And his response was, sometimes we need to do the right thing, even at the risk of being a hero. Yeah. Mm. That's a good line. And I, and I thought that is, and Ignatius would have agreed with that 100%. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I think it's a really helpful uh, unpacking of humility. And and again, I, I think that there, you know, if, if good doesn't get done because you're too busy, you know, tr- feeling bad for yourself, then, then, then that good hasn't gotten done. And that's the end. That's, that's what matters in the end, right? Is, you know, right. how are we, are we advancing, are we advancing God's cause in the world of, of justice and peace and, and compassion? Well, here, let me give you another quick example of how this really yeah. played out in his life concretely. You know, what happens if you get accused of something you didn't do, right? Well, there's two legitimate approaches you can take. And one very traditional approach is, well, I'm going to offer it up as an opportunity to suffer for the Lord. I know that I didn't do this, but just as the Lord suffered um, unjustly, was accused of things wrongly, all right, I'm going to imitate him and experience these sufferings because, uh, like St. Teresa of Avila said, maybe I'm innocent about this thing, but there's other things I was guilty of, <laughs> that I'm guilty for that I, that I got away with. So you know, maybe, maybe, maybe it all evens out if I just accept this, this false accusation, right? But for Ignatius that kind of approach wasn't going to work because if we are truly committed to inspiring and edifying as many other people as possible, then it does matter what people think of me. They're not going to listen to me if I think that I'm this public sinner or something or or big hypocrite. And so Ignatius would go out of his way to defend himself publicly instead of simply offering it up. Okay. And so both of them are legitimate approaches but it just depends on what your your personal spirituality is and where your priorities are going to be. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Um, uh, we had we had Father John O'Malley on uh, the podcast a few weeks ago, uh, talking about his his uh, latest uh, piece with with Father Tim O'Brien. I think I think you're familiar with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and he talked about um, uh, the importance of Ignatius's autobiography in the life of the society um, and, and how it was introduced to Jesuits. Um, kind of late in the game, really, right? It was early 1900s, something, something like right. that. The, the um, first two English translations both came out in 1900, and they were essentially ignored by almost all Jesuits. Um, right. it, it's kind of hard for us to imagine today, but at that time period in Jesuit history, and not only Jesuit history, but all Catholic religious orders at this time, there simply wasn't that interest. Uh, And let's make sure we're interpreting Ignatius correctly. How do we know that we haven't deviated from his values? Let's continually look back to Ignatius for inspiration. Uh, In many ways, this simply was not part of the zeitgeist of Catholic religious life. Okay. And so what happened was there were some Jesuit scholars in Rome and Spain who, for the first time, put together critical editions of 
early Jesuit texts in their original languages, like Spanish and Latin. And those came out in the very late 1890s. And so in response to their work, there were two Jesuits. I think one was American and one was British, if I remember correctly, Ricks and O'Connor, who translated the autobiography. Uh, and both translations basically immediately went to the dustbin. I mean, they, they collect, <laughs> nobody really paid attention to that. That's because they were praying that the book was going to be a flop. That was probably what happened, <laughs> right? <laughs> because, I mean, to put it bluntly, Jesuits just didn't care at that time. Uh, to their way of thinking, everything that we really needed to know about Ignatius has already been handed down through 500 years of Jesuit tradition. So, so what's kind of the point in one regard? But then in the 1960s, the Second Vatican Council told all religious orders and congregations, uh, the council said, look, many of you, whether you know it or not, have wandered away from the original inspiration of your founders. And so what we want you to do is to go back and to study your original sources in earnest and recommit yourselves to the original inspiration while at the same time taking into account the special needs of the present. So go back, capture the, the heart of it, and yet adapt for the present. And Jesuits really took that to heart. I mean, we, you know, if there's one thing, <laughs> if there's one thing about the council that Jesuits fell over backwards obeying, it was that. Um, and uh, as a result people started to take a much greater interest in the autobiography and a number of new translations came out. And that's what Father O'Malley is referring to. That's when the ball really got started. It, it amazes me because again, that, that seems to fit so well with our, our conversation, our last podcast, and even where we began this, this conversation, this idea of, um, you know, why debunk these myths or these kind of, um, you know, slight mis, you know, misstatements about Jesuits. Well, because, you know, if, if you're going to have a certain way of proceeding, then, 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 you know, there's so many different, for all so many different Christians, so many different saints that all have worthwhile lives to study. But let's make sure that we we study them well, so that we can emulate them correctly, and not just right, and not just kind of, uh, you know, hodgepodge stuff together in in a way that's not tr truthful to the to the source. Exactly. And Father O'Malley and Father O'Brien made an excellent point. And what we need to remember is that when we talk about Ignatian spirituality, Jesuits simply did not talk that way before, say, the 1960s or 70s. Jesuits before then, you know, well, I'm a Jesuit. I live the Jesuit life by virtue of being a Jesuit. The idea that we would have to explain it in some kind of abstract the theoretical terms, for the most part, didn't factor into our way of thinking. And the same for other religious orders. Before 1970, you would not have heard a Franciscan referring to Franciscan spirituality, okay, that mm -hmm. kind of a thing. But then, for all kinds of reasons, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, uh, like, for example, uh, Jesuits, our numbers start to go down. And we are working more and more with lay people in a way that we never did before, right? Um, and so our lay colleagues are saying, well, okay, if I'm going to work with you in this Jesuit institution, you have to tell me what it means to be a Jesuit. And so it was precisely by our experience of working with lay people that we had to articulate ourselves in a way that we never had to do before because we just kind of took it for granted, you know? Right. And so the, uh, and Father O'Malley and Father O'Brien rightly say that what we call Ignatian spirituality today 
is in many ways kind of an artificial construct. Not untrue. I mean, all of the different aspects that we talk about in Ignatian spirituality have the roots in Ignatius. But this particular way of putting them together like pieces in a puzzle to form an organic whole, that's a very new kind of uh, articulation of what it means to follow Ignatius. And it's still an, it's still in process. It's still an evolution. Yeah, no. Well, I want to end with a, with a question I ended with, uh, with, with for Father O'Malley. If Ignatius was dropped into the society today, what, what would he think? What would surprise him? What would uh, console him? Where might he kind of wag the finger? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think Ignatius would be absolutely thrilled and consoled by any number of things. So, for example... Uh, you know, what we take today, like, for example, our relationship with you as a lay person working in the church, working with Jesuits, it doesn't seem like anything to us right now. But that was highly controversial in the 1960s and 70s and 80s. Would that work if Jesuits were to work with lay people on a regular basis? Uh, and yet, I would say, by most accounts, the fruit has been undeniable that Jesuits and lay people working together have made a more universal impact on the church than Jesuits could have ever done by themselves. And so if Ignatius were here right now, when he was alive, he never worked with lay people in that kind of a way. And I think he would be clicking his heels with joy right now for he to see what we're doing. He would you know. definitely want to be on the podcast, I think, right? Absolutely. Yeah. He'd be the he'd be the first one. He'd, you'd have a hard time prying him off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, after it took him so many years to write his autobiography, I can only imagine he would be super excited to talk on a podcast. <laughs> and uh, I think, um, you know, he would be delighted by the universal apostolic preferences that the society has articulated, right? The recognition that we cannot do everything, no human being or group can. And so we need to be conscious and deliberate about what good things are we going to do or emphasize and which ones are we going to kind of, uh, we're going to have to let go or at least de-emphasize in some way. Uh, not because they're bad, they're all good things, but you can't do everything, you know? And so I think Ignatius would be thrilled that the society is articulating those priorities in a more uh, deliberate, conscientious way today. And of course, for listeners who are not uh, familiar, the universal apostolic preferences are, are four key ways in which um, it kind of lenses through which the society is examining uh, its work, right? And, and it's, and it's, its options and those uh, leading, ensuring that we're leading people to God, right? Through, through right. Uh, the exercises. Um, yeah. so, with, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh yeah. So uh, promoting the ministry of the spiritual exercises. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, working with people who feel excluded in some ways from society or the church working with people at the margins. Mm -hmm. And and that has a very ancient tradition. I shouldn't say ancient, uh, but a 500-year-old tradition in Jesuit history. Even the first generation of Jesuits talked about that as being kind of an aspect of our ministry. Um, working with young people, which again, in terms of that bigger impact on society, it makes sense that you want to really work with the young people who are going to make that impact over the course of their whole lives, right? Form them now to get that biggest bang for your buck. And, th and then, of course, the environment, which is obviously a relatively new issue, but it only stands to reason we can't improve the world if we're not going to have a world to improve. You know, <laughs> Everything's and, on fire, yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, and so in terms of making a tremendous impact on the human family as a whole, 
because so many cultures around the world are suffering in one way or another because of these environmental abuses. Uh, hard to imagine a more effective way of serving that greater good. So yeah, I'm very proud of the society for having articulated these uh, these priorities. Yeah, no, it's it's definitely an exciting exciting time, exciting direction, and um, and again, uh, kind of ever ever new, ever ancient. How's it go? Ever ancient, ever new. Um, <laughs> in know, some ways, <laughs> I know what you said. Oh, it's a line from uh, Saint Augustine, the Confessions. If Is I it, oh man, wrong yeah. wrong set of religious religious uh, folks. Uh, I think so. Don't quote me on that. <laughs> <laughs> Sour note to end on, but <laughs> uh, Father Barr, I so appreciate your, your time. And, um, and I, again, I, I think just the conversation shows the, uh, it's, it's worth digging into returning to, um, these texts and, 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 and the, uh, the saints that, that, that they, they are about so that we can kind of deepen our understanding of, of who we are today. Right. Eric, I can't thank you enough for having me over again. And uh, I will just quote the old timers during the Great Depression used to say, my opinion and a nickel will get you a cup of coffee. So. Hey, all right, man. <laughs> <laughs> all right, my friend, I appreciate it. <laughs> thank you very much, Eric. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States. And when we're not working from home, the show is recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. AMDG is edited by Marcus Bleach, and our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Megan Leapsch, Becky Sindelar, and me. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at We Are the Jesuits, and Facebook.com slash Jesuits. Sign up for weekly email reflections by visiting Jesuits.org slash weekly. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with the Jesuit vocation promoter at BeAJesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at Jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire.